are nearing the end of our series in Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, Ephesians is in the New Testament, which means it's in the second half. The Old and New Testament are not divided right in half of the Bible, but you'll, you'll find it closer uh, to the end, to the right side. Uh, and once you find Ephesians, our Bibles are marked not in their original form. The, the chapters and verses were added after the fact, but we, help, we are helped in navigating the Bible by having chapters and verses. And so the chapter is chapter 6, so that's a big number 6. And then uh, verses, I'm going to be reading verses 5 through 9. So Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may remember the first sermon that we went through uh, in Ephesians. I quoted from my favorite guy to quote from, Klein Snodgrass. Because he's got a great name. Uh, And he said, the whole book of Ephesians really could be a letter written to a church today. The whole book of Ephesians could be written to us, except for one part. And that's where we are this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants and masters. What is going on here? What are we talking about? Just a quick poll. The Bibles you have in front of you may translate that first word in verse 5 different ways. Whose Bible says bond servants? Raise your hands a handful. Who says servants? Bring on a couple. Who says slaves? Okay. It's alarming. It's troubling. All right? Don't worry. We'll work through it. What are we talking about here? Bond servants and masters. Well, I'll tell you in advance. We need to approach this passage carefully. There is a narrow line that we walk, and we could fall into a ditch on one side or the other. We could ignore the context. So we could jump right to, how does this apply to me today, now? And we could just ignore all that's happening in the first century to the original audience who received this letter. Do I think this is applicable to employee-employee relationships, to your work, to your school, to your life? Absolutely. I know it's applicable. But we don't want to get there too quickly. If we do, I think we miss something. The other ditch that we can fall into is saying, well, obviously, you know, Bond servants and masters, that's not us. We're not the audience here. And so we should throw it away. Especially when we think about the complexity of first century slavery. How do we encounter that? Let's just skip it and move on. Again, that's a ditch that we shouldn't fall into as well. This is God's word for us. It's not addressed to us, but it is for us. And so we trust that God knows what he is doing. And we can trust that the Bible, his word, is essential for us. And I would push hard against that tendency to dismiss parts of the Bible that are hard for us. 
because I think, well, I know you'll be encouraged from this passage this morning. And I want to make a bold claim. I think an appropriate understanding of this passage could actually transform your life. Okay, it's a big claim, but we'll get into it. I think that this passage could actually transform your life. If you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, first of all, thank you for joining us. I'm really glad that you're here. You picked a great Sunday. I know I say that every time, but you picked a great Sunday. It's a strange sermon for the Sunday before Christmas. Maybe that's not what you're used to. If, if that's the reason you're here, again, I'm glad you're here. But it's a little bit different than usual. And I understand that this kind of passage may feel like rubbing alcohol in an open wound to you. You may think it's these parts of the Bible that keep me from pursuing Christianity. Well, I want to encourage you and comfort you that, yes, these passages are tough. We're not denying that. And it deserves us to slowly work through and consider what does this mean and what does this mean for us. And so I want to ask you to hang in there. You could dismiss this at the door and not give it the time of day. But I know that you know that's not how you really engage in things, even things that you disagree with. And so I thank you and applaud you for being here and taking the time to consider the Bible, to consider the good news. So hang in there. Because you may be surprised that the Bible and Christianity is not the character you might have in your mind or, or what someone's told you. The truths that we find in this passage can and will, again, bold claim, transform your life. I stand by it. Bold claim. Let's work through it. Our big idea for all of us as we encounter Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9 is this. Live your whole life for the glory of God. Live your whole life for the glory of God. Again, you may be wondering, that's a hop, skip, and a jump from talking about slavery. How are we going to get there? Well, we will get there, Lord willing. But if you're a Christian, you hear a, a statement like that, live your whole life for the glory of God, and you think, oh, I'm, I, I'm with you. Sounds good. But I want you to really consider what that means this morning as we work through God's word together. Because that's really your mission statement as a Christian, to live your life, your whole life, for the glory of God. And again, if you're not a Christian, and you're here with us this morning. Remember, even in a passage like this, we can find rich hope. We can ponder the truths of the gospel. And I hope that you will ponder the truths of the gospel with us this morning. And so before we get really into the meat and potatoes, I want to give you a little bit of context. I wouldn't normally make this a sermon point, but you'll see in your bulletins, I have a section here for context. You can make notes. Uh, that's kind of how we say amen here at Heritage Grace, since you make notes. Um, that was a joke. Thanks, Joyce. Yeah, fair. No individual laughing. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, but we're going to work through and talk about a little bit of context here. Talk about context. What are we talking about, and who is Paul talking to? Well, again, that first word that we've already discovered, uh, our different Bibles have different translations for this word, doulos, or doulos, is the word that is translated often as slave, or bondservant, or servant. Even the English Standard Version, which I'm preaching out of today, depending what year you have that it was released, even in the last 20 or so years, they've translated this word differently. In some of the older ones, again, it's not a bad translation. They translate it as slave. 
because that is the actual word. And so that's a good translation. If you have a Bible that has that translation, that is accurate. That's the word that's said there. The reason why some translations have drifted away from that word, especially in this context, is because that word carries with it a lot of rightly baggage. When we hear slave, we think of something. We think of slavery in the states, or we think of modern-day slavery around the world. We think of racially motivated slavery. We think about permanent slavery. And so if that's what comes into our mind, again, that's not a bad instinct. That's right. We need to look at the words we read and the Bible and everything through the lens that we have. But the reason why it's been translated in different ways is depending on the context. And so where, uh, even reading the Bible, where the context does seem clear that we're talking about slavery, they've still retained that word, slave. Where it seems like there's a bit more freedom, which is mostly what we're talking about this morning, they use the word bondservant, which we'll explore in a deeper way. And then when it's just kind of broadly talking about service, they've translated it to servant. And so again, depending what version of the Bible, what translation you have, you likely have a different word in front of you, and that's okay. Uh, and again, even you may have one Bible at home and another Bible you bring with you place, it might have a different word. But that's why. It's the same word, but trying to translate for our context, our understanding. And so what is uh, the context and the understanding of this word? What's the context of first century slavery? Well, again, when we think of slavery, we often think of racially motivated slavery, and we think of permanent slavery. This is not the same as what we see in the first century. In the first century, how would someone become a slave? Well, they could be born into it. Uh, they could be captured in a war. They could uh, become a slave to pay off a debt that they wouldn't be able to pay off otherwise. Uh, some might even choose to become a slave because it was a better position or status than they had before, a better lot in life. Uh, slaves, again, is, is in the first century is not exactly what we picture. Slaves could often own property. Uh, they could be educated. Frequently, they were more educated even than their masters. And so even though uh, we can kind of sugarcoat it and say, well, this is better than what, what we might think of as slavery, it's still not good. I want to preface that many times through this sermon. That is still not good. Even at the time, even if the, the, the situation or the structure itself wasn't as broken as what we might think of as slavery, it still could be horrible. Uh, we know that. And nowhere could we argue based on biblical principles that slavery was acceptable in any way, shape, or form. The treatment of slaves in the first century was really dictated by the owner. Were they kind or were they cruel? That would be uh, how the treatment was. But the system itself wasn't what we think of as slavery. It was a huge part of society. In a city like Ephesus, it's estimated that between 20% and up to a third of the population were slaves or bond servants. The type of work that they did could be a whole range of work. It could be blue collar to white collar. You could be a doctor and be a bond servant. One of the, the highest status things you could be at the time was to own a bank. Now, that would be an owner, but who managed the bank? Their bond servant. And that was still a very high status position. Now, it wasn't only status positions. There also was bond servants and slaves that worked in the mines. And we know through history there was rebellions around this time in the mines. And so it was, it was a whole spectrum. It wasn't really, a, because it was so broad, it wasn't even really seen as a category of people. It was just a 
a huge block of people that, that really covered a lot of categories. And it wasn't even, if you had to categorize it, it wasn't the lowest rung on the ladder. The lowest rung was a day laborer, someone who didn't have a consistent source of income, who didn't have a job, and they had to go into the, the market square and try to get work each day. So it's hard to think that, that slaves were even above that or bond servants were even above that. But that's who we're talking about this morning. They could climb that ladder. They could get better jobs. They could, uh, like I said, earn money. They could own property. Even some slaves owned other slaves. And many who eventually gained their freedom you know, had servants and slaves that were uh, in their care, part of their, essentially part of their family is the way it was seen. They could often buy their freedom. It was very common. Uh, most bond servants or slaves were uh, released from that before they turned 30. And so this is why many scholars think that the biblical authors don't outright condemn slavery. Because that's our instinct. We should say, why are they not saying, this is terrible? Why don't they condemn it? Well, again, this is why many scholars think that they didn't. Because it was something that was not racially motivated. It wasn't permanent. It might be, or not might be, it certainly is a broken system. But that may be one of the reasons why it was not condemned in that way. But to be clear, it's also never condoned. Some things are explicitly condemned. Things like slavery as we would picture it. In 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul talks about, uh, the, I think, the kind of slavery that we might think of. Enslaving or man-stealing. That is explicitly outright condemned. But this other kind of structure is not explicitly condemned, but again, nor is it condoned. But I do think implicitly through the whole Bible, it can serve as an argument against slavery. All people are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. The value of all people is undeniable through the Bible. Right? The, the, the thought to own another person is just unfathomable if we read about the value of human life. And we see that especially as we come into the New Testament here, and even the language in this letter, the book of Ephesians, the, the uniting power of the gospel, that Jews and Gentiles are united, that Paul's writing here to bond servants and to masters. They're equal, members of the church. We see that the gospel is absolutely unifying and uniting. We sang in O Holy Night, a lyric that maybe you're thinking about it this morning, because uh, as we went through, for the slave is our brother. This is a uh, reference from Philemon, the, the very short little letter, uh, but where Paul exhorted Philemon to receive back Onesimus as a brother and not as a slave. We see that the gospel is uniting. And so even this passage, I would say, even though sickeningly it's been used through time to, and been distorted to actually support slavery, I think implicitly calls for slavery to end. And here's why. If Christians, if both the bondservants and the masters who this letter was addressed to, or this section was addressed to, if they were to obey what Paul writes here, the structure may still be called slavery or servitude, but the practice would look very different. Here Paul instructs bondservants how to live within the confines of their position. But other places, in first, like 1 Corinthians 7, he exhorts them to gain their freedom if possible, which again, they could and frequently did. From there, they again could rise to any rung, really. You may remember we worked through the book of Acts recently, and there was a guy named Felix. Now, he wasn't a good character. He put Paul in prison. But he was the governor of Judea. He was a slave. He gained his freedom and went all the way up to be the governor of Judea. 
Another reason why there may not be a call for outright rebellion or abolition of this practice at the time was because we need to remember the size of the Christian movement. Again, they were just getting momentum. They were just building up. Now, again, they were growing like wildfire, but they also still didn't have a ton of societal influence. And we see throughout history, and we see from the Bible's teaching, when you don't have sway or control in the way to affect corruption, the way you do it is from within, from within the system. When you do have sway and control, the way to make a change is to abolish a horrible practice like this, which we have seen Christians do in history, and disappointingly, we have seen Christians fail miserably at abolishing the practice of slavery. And so this is consistent with Paul's practice and understanding. Benjamin Merkel, New Testament scholar, writes this. It was not Paul's way of operating to try to subvert corrupt governments or institutions. Rather, he sought to equip the people of God to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord within such realities. Within such realities. And so the context here is Greco-Roman slavery practices. Again, that's not an applicable context for us this morning. But that's the context of where Paul is writing, where he instructs them how to live. So let's look at their instructions on how to live. The instructions, first of all, for work, and then we'll look at instructions for authority. I think you'll be able to connect the dots for application to your life as we go, but we'll work through it again as we go. So the first instruction for work is to work with reverence. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Again, these words, fear and trembling, they can kind of trigger us in a sense to think that sounds horrible. These are, this is a common phrase, common expression. Uh, they, if we treat these words, uh, again, as what our autocorrect minds might do, we can be concerned, and it, and it could be concerning. But this idea behind fear and trembling is reverence and respect. Now, scholars disagree. What is this fear and trembling and this reverence and respect? Is this reverence and respect for their owners or is this reverence and respect for the Lord now either way it's a much clearer connection if we say well this is reverence and respect for the Lord work as unto the Lord Uh, but even if it is reverence and respect for their earthly masters we see that this is a way that we can honor Christ that a bond servant in this situation could honor Christ by respecting their earthly master It's really an extension of this thesis statement that's led us into this section on wives and husbands, on parents and children, and now bond servants and masters. This is in chapter 5, verses 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, we saw that's direct application for what the spirit-filled life looks like. And so this is, I think, what Paul is getting at here when he's talking about fear and trembling, this reverence and respect saying this is how you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so another way to say it would be saying that our work is worship. And if our work is worship, we see uh, our next point there, that we should work with a sincere heart, work with, a sin- with sincerity, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Again, the motivation here is heart work, heart-driven work. Not just to please a boss or to please others, but to please who? The Lord. This isn't lazy work. This isn't busy work. This is genuine 
hard work and for the right reason, to honor God. To honor God. You can work hard, and you can work hard for the wrong reason. This isn't the picture that Paul paints. He exhorts bond servants to shift their ultimate allegiance, to shift who their master is, to, as trite as it sounds, make Jesus their boss. Right? Be bond servants of Christ. That's the call. So it's to work with reverence, to work with sincerity, and very closely connected to that is to work with willingness. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Again, you're probably noticing already at this point, every single verse in this passage, again, tough passage, but every single verse references Christ or the Lord. And so we can figure out pretty quick that that's how we start to figure out what the application, what's the principle here? What's the principle Paul's giving to these bond servants in a very broken and evil system? And even for us, 2,000 years later, what's the principle for us? To work with reverence, sincerity, and willingness. Again, this is a question of motivation. He reminds them that their willingness is to be directly tied to the fact that they're ultimately serving God and not man. And so again, the motivation is working hard and working well out of reverence for Christ. And so you can think through this. No matter where you are in your life, if you are working, if you're a student, if you're in school, if you're home, whatever your, your position in life, it's important to think through what are your primary motivators? What gets you out of bed? What, what are you doing? And then what are you doing it for? Or who are you doing it for? In your job, is your motivator a paycheck? Is it status? Again, kids in school, what's your motivator? Is it to please your teachers or your parents? What's your motivator? And these things are good. We certainly should work for these things. Things like a paycheck. We should work to provide for our families, to put food on the table. But it's a question of order. What's our primary motivator? If pay was the motivator, it would be a no-brainer when that promotion comes along because you're a hard worker and you get this promotion opportunity that you would take it. Higher pay, more status, more authority. But what if that promotion contributed to an unhealthy work-life balance? What if that hindered your ability to serve in the church or uh, prohibit, you know, prospective roles in the church. Now, this may sound like I'm over-spiritualizing it, but I think, honestly, we all come to this question in conversation with a distorted view of what our primary responsibilities and motivators must be. And too many scripturally non-negotiable things are being sacrificed on the altar of work. And so we need to work with willingness as to the Lord, and finally work with trust. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And so there's a level of trust needed here, because if we do shift who our ultimate allegiance is to, who our master is, we may not have that immediate payoff that working hard for another person might have, working in the wrong way. So Paul's reminder is necessary that we need to trust God, that he's good on his word, that by seeking first his kingdom, 
all that we need will be given to us. This faithful, God-glorifying work might not be noticed or recognized in the world, but we can trust that we will give an account for how we lived our lives. We are all stewards of our gifts, of our time, of our resources, our responsibilities, our station in life. We need to trust God. We need to trust that he knows what he's doing when he has placed you where he has placed you. You may be in a situation in life where you feel stuck. Or you may feel like you don't know what the future looks like. I'm confident that that's where a lot of these bond servants would be feeling. You know, maybe one of them, you know, felt like they were winning. They were managing the bank. They had a good situation. But I think most of them would certainly be able to relate with that life situation where you think, I just don't know what's on the horizon. I feel stuck. I don't know what's next. There's a level of trust that we need to have in our work, no matter where you are in your life. Again, it's not the same situation as these bond servants that Paul's writing to, but the principle is the same. Paul doesn't spend a lot of time talking about their situation other than addressing them by their situation. But wherever you are right now, you need to trust the Lord. Lean on him. And remember that no matter where you are, you can glorify God in it. It's easier said than done. But it's important. We can be comforted that we've not been saved by good works. But again, we're reminded from Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved for good works. That God prepared beforehand for us. You may feel like you have no idea what's going on. You don't know what the future holds. But God does. And we see again, each of these verses anchor us in the work of Christ. And so this is true for those under authority, but also those in authority. And so we see some instructions for authority. We see instructions for work and instructions for authority. To have any level of authority is a privilege and weighty responsibility. Again, we each will have to give an account for how we stewarded what God has given us, including and especially any authority that we have been entrusted with. Now, we've considered some of this before already as we looked at wives and husbands, as we see children and parents. We see other places in Scripture where it talks about the authority and the weightiness of giving an account to the Lord for pastors and for elders. And so Paul's instructions here to masters, even if they were noble masters, would have been countercultural. He's saying you need to to be accountable for this responsibility you have. And so he leads off by saying, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Do the same to them. And this isn't a command to mutually obey and serve. We considered that as we looked at verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, that submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission is reciprocal. It's not necessarily symmetrical. But we see that this do the same means come from the same heart, the same kind of willingness, sincerity, the similar reverence and respect for other humans. This is how we show reverence for Christ. And so this command is the same for these masters, for those that are in authority. Now likely those in, in leadership, those who were masters, were not worried about being people pleasers. What did they care if they you know, pleased their servants? 
And so Paul adds a bit of a qualifier here for them. He says, stop your threatening. To threaten someone is really a distortion of God-given authority. It's not how we are to lead. That's not how we're to love. That's not how we give reverence. That's not how we love one another. Certainly not glorifying to God. And so, again, disconnecting ourselves from the context here, we are not masters and bondservants. But God does entrust many with authority. And so where has God given you authority? And does your exercising of authority honor him? If you're an employer or a manager of some sort, would those that work with you and for you be surprised that you're a Christian? What would their opinion be of Christians and of God based on the way that you work and the way that you lead? These are important but challenging questions and maybe less obvious but even more challenging and important is to think not just of the audience of the people that work for you, but the audience that really matters, God himself. This is what Paul says at the end. He says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. And so this is the crux of the passage. As we get to this point, this can either be incredibly encouraging or incredibly discouraging and humbling for you. That God doesn't show partiality. That he's a master of all people. Friend, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your status is before your family, your friends, your co-workers, or the world, we all share the same master, whether we acknowledge him or not. And so you may have ascended the ladder of success in the world's eyes, but you get no bonus points before God. You may think of yourself as having little value. You might be on the opposite side. But God sees you the same value as every other person. Again, in a sense, that's encouraging, right? Humans are terrible at being impartial. You're terrible at being impartial. Our default position is to give preferential treatment to those who are rich, successful, famous, popular. God shows no partiality. He cares about how you live your life. But this idea of a lack of partiality, I feel like, is like, oh, look what I did. Cool. What does that mean to me? The Lord looks at us as we truly are. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so it's humbling and encouraging, and sometimes troubling to think that God shows no partiality. And the reason why it's troubling is because the Bible says clearly, and we know deep down in our hearts that this is true, that we all have sinned. We've all gone against God. We've all gone our own way. We've rebelled. The Bible says no one is righteous. No, not one. No matter what you bring, your work, your status, your philanthropy, your being a good person, that's not enough. Our best works are filthy rags. And because God is perfect and holy, and we certainly are not, we've separated ourselves from a right relationship with him. 
And so the reality is that we are all in bondage. We are all slaves to our sin. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. And God knows this. He knew it. And so in our depravity and desperate need, he knew that because he's merciful and love, he could make a way for us to be made right with him. And the way he did that was sending his own son to the earth to send Jesus into the world to be righteous like we never could, to live the sinless life that we never could. And as we were reminded from our scriptural assurance of forgiveness earlier, that Jesus emptied himself, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That lowly position of a bondservant, even lower, was taken on by him. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the penalty for sin. And in his death, he bore the weight of humanity's sin. He carried that weight so that those who would acknowledge that they are sinners would turn from their sin and trust in him for salvation. And this really is our hope, that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day, demonstrated that God's wrath, his just wrath against sin had been satisfied. And so this is the good news. When we say, talk about the gospel, it's not just an expression. It means good news. This is the good news that God looks at all people and shows no partiality. He's not phased by worldly success. He's not phased by your lack of success. He doesn't think less of you. But he looks at us and he sees us come with empty hands and broken hearts. And he sees sinners desperately in need of a savior. And he gives us that savior. So that when he then looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees Christ and his righteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus, he became sin, even though he knew no sin. So that you and I, if we trust in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We could be restored to that right relationship. He took our place. He subbed in and out. And he took the debt that we deserved. And so the good news is that there is no partiality with God. But this is discouraging if we choose to reject the gospel. Even if we profess with our lips that the gospel is true, this can be a challenging passage and a challenging statement as we actually look at the way we spend our time and our money and our energy. We're investing in things that have no eternal value. But the good news is that God shows no partiality. He looks at us and he sees reality, not a facade. He sees a sinner desperately in need of a savior. And the good news is that we have one. One who came not to be served, but to serve. One who came to, give to, uh, came to live and give his life as a ransom for many. One who came to die for your sins so that there could be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is why Christmas is such good news. Christmas is so much more than the presents and the hype, even the family time. I know you've heard this before, but this is the good news of Christmas. Those things are 
fun and they're good things. Family really matters. The Bible teaches that too. But the good news about Christmas is that God sent Jesus into the world to redeem humanity. I think some of the most profound verses in the whole Bible we see in Galatians chapter 4 as we think about the incarnation when Jesus came to earth. It talks about our hopeless state apart from Christ, how we are enslaved to the things of the world. That's what Galatians 4, 4 to 7 says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has spent the sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friend, don't ever get tired of how good that news is. That we are slaves to our own sin. We can't even get ourselves out of the pit. But because of the gospel, we can be granted freedom from this slavery. And not just to get out of jail free card and then we move on. More than freedom, we've already encountered this in the letter of Ephesians. Adoption. So that when God looks at you, he's impartial to your worldly pursuits. But when he looks at you, he sees a son or a daughter. This is the reminder that we have at Christmas. This is the good news that truly is our hope. And this is why I say even in tough passages like this, it changes everything. This is what we've been talking about for weeks. The gospel-shaped life. And as we sang, it's Christ who is our only hope in life and death. It's our only confidence that we could stand before God and be counted as righteous, not because anything that we bring, but because of what Christ has done for us. And this is not only true for that day when we stand, we will all stand before the Lord. This is for us in the here and now, the gospel-shaped life. It's how we can look at a broken institution like slavery in the first century and see how Paul can instruct them to live in light of the gospel. It's how you can look at your own life, as broken as it may feel, and know what it means to live in light of the gospel. It's how you can go to the work tomorrow, to that job you don't want, and live in light of the gospel. Those at home with kids, it's, it's how you can wrangle them up and live in light of the gospel. Kids, it's you who go to school tomorrow and you can live in light of the gospel. We don't have to work to please people. We don't have to work and live our lives in the way of eye service. We don't have to live our lives to even work for our own righteousness. Real, true righteousness has been granted to us if we trust in Christ and his righteousness. And so this is how we can learn to work as worship. You can worship in the menial, in the challenging, and in the stressful. And it's how you can find joy, even if circumstances in your life are disappointing or even distressing. 
I shared that with our members this week. When the news came out for the new you know, regulations, private gatherings are down. That's, that's bad news for a lot of people. It's, we got to you know, protect people, but that I know feels like a gut punch. Take away the, the reasoning behind it. We're not talking about that. But that can hurt. And that's not what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. For those times when you are distressed or discouraged, what Paul's saying is we can glorify God in the distressing times, in the discouragement. And you may be here this morning and feel a whole lot of different things about a whole lot of different things. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your friendships. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it is COVID stuff. The Bible gives us clarity on how we are to live amidst the brokenness. And for those that are in authority, it's it's how you can consider, how do I glorify God with what he's given me? My stewardship that I have, how do I glorify God in it? And this is really the MO of the Christian life. To glorify God in whatever way the Lord enables you. It's a lifelong process, but to really grasp this is truly life-changing. And I don't think I'm overselling it. Now, how we apply that in each part of our lives, again, we got to work on that together. And we got to do that by God's help. But this is our, our purpose, to glorify God. That's why we started our, where is it here? My next is a little small. We exist to glorify God. That's our primary purpose as a church, and that's your primary purpose as a Christian, to glorify God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, written in the 17th century, the first question says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a big question. You'll bump into people, and it's like, it seems like the stumper. You know, what's the meaning of life? You've heard that. Maybe you've said it. Maybe you've thought it. That's the meaning. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the chief end of man. Now, there's a, there's a lot we can think about with that. But that may trigger things in our minds, like 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is how we're to live our lives. And so as Paul writes these bond servants and masters, that's the lens he's looking through, and that's the principle he's teaching, saying live your life to the glory of God. Work hard for the glory of God. Lead to the glory of God. And so this morning, brothers, sisters, friends, think about where God has placed you. Who has God placed around you? What has God gifted you with? So whether the answers to those questions are big and grandiose or whether they're small in the world's eyes, remember that you serve the Lord, you don't serve man. We're reminded again, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So friends, be shaped by the gospel. Trust in God's grace alone for salvation and let the gospel shape your life and your work. Work hard, work with reverence, work with sincerity, work with willingness and trust. Glorify God with your entire life. Let's pray. God, you do deserve all the glory. Help us, Lord, to grasp that life-changing, life-altering work that we are to glorify you with our lives. God, we thank you for your word that even when we bump into these passages that are tough, we can be encouraged the way you have been encouraging your saints for centuries. That no matter what lot we find ourselves in in life, that we can work and must work for your glory. Help us to see through that lens as we live our lives to work hard to honor you with our work. And through all things, Lord, remind us more of the gospel. Remind us more of the good news that shapes our entire lives. As we share in the Lord's Supper together, God, we pray that you would wake us up again to the good news of the gospel. And if there's anyone here who does not yet trust in you for salvation, God, would you open their heart? pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.